Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics, to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Today, we're going to continue our series based on Plutarch's lives of the noble Grecians and Romans. Today's subjects are the Spartan Cleomenes and the Roman Gaius Gracchus. As before, Plutarch picks a Greek and a Roman to compare not just for leadership, but for moral and civic virtue as well. Plutarch was a Greek writing at the time of the Julio-Claudian emperors, when the forms of the Roman Republic were still somewhat respected, a matter of no little importance when we talk about the Gracchi in particular. And this is a direct follow-on to our previous one with Aegis and uh, Tiberius Gracchus, in that it's the immediately subsequent uh, period of time as well. Uh, Tom, what can you tell us about Cleomenes? Well, Richard, he is one of two Spartan kings. He is uh, not from the same line as Aegis. Aegis. He is from the uh, Aegean line, and he succeeded his father, Leonidas II. He was king for 13 years from 235 BC to 222 BC. Um, his early life, uh, in his early life, uh, his father was exiled from Sparta, as we talked about in the prior episode, and sought refuge in the temple of Athena after opposing the reforms of Aegis. Having stated his reforms, uh, Aegis uh, went on campaign, and uh, we talked about uh, how he was arrested and then executed. And following his execution, uh, Clemenides, Cleomenes, who was around 18 at the time, was forced by his father to marry Aegis's widow, a wealthy heiress. Uh, Clemenides uh, ascended to the throne in 235 following the death of his father, uh, but he did not follow his father's political uh, uh, leanings. He was inspired by Aegis and followed through on Aegis's reforms. And uh, at this time, one uh, of uh, the Achaean leagues under the command of Eratus was trying to unite everyone in the Peloponnese, which of course includes Sparta. And after hearing of Leonidas's death, Eratus began attacking cities in Acadia, which bordered Achaea. Uh, and uh, several cities joined uh, Sparta in uh, fighting this or, or trying to turn this back. Clemenides um, started uh, to advance out to meet uh, uh, the Achaeans. Uh, but was called back by the ephors, who we talked about, uh, sort of a board of directors for Sparta over the two kings. But uh, when a certain city, uh, when Eratus was able to capture Caphi, the ephors sent him out again. And uh, I found this one of the most interesting things, that uh, he had 5,000 Spartans confronting uh, a Chian league whose army consisted of 20,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry. That's 5,000 versus 26, and historians assess, uh, agree with Eratus, who is leading that 26,000, that uh, they were no match for the 5,000 Spartans. So uh, the Spartans uh, routed the Achaean army, and that led to Clemenides having a 
a much stronger uh, position uh, politically. Unfortunately, he, uh, perhaps like Tiberius uh, Gracchus, and then made an overstep. And while he uh, continued a successful military campaign, he removed the E-4s who had obstructed his political will um, to uh, move towards the Agus reforms. And um, he had four of the six killed, uh, and two were able to escape sanctuary. So this was perhaps, uh, you know, his overstepping moment. And uh, he um, was able to persuade um, those who he forced, he replaced him with to legitimize his violence. Uh, and then he began his land reforms. Uh, he first handed over his land to the state. Then he canceled debts some very, from some very rich but highly indebted Spartans, and this allowed him to move forward. He divided up the land and gave an equal lot to every citizen. Uh, then the remaining land was pooled and redistributed to uh, some 4,000 citizens, um, old citizens who been, had been exiled, new citizens who were part of the mercenaries who fought with the Spartan army, and even the Perkioi uh, were granted land for their dedication to uh, Spartan. So this greatly enhanced the, the first families of Sparta, Spartiates, who were full Spartan citizens. Also, the um, Helots received land, as I mentioned uh, in a prior episode. These were the former slaves who had been freed. Uh, Clemenides also restored ancient Spartan military and social discipline. So we had um, land reform. We had a turn back to a more disciplined Sparta. And um, I found it very interesting that the Clemenides reformed the Spartan army to follow the model of the Macedonian army who had um, defeated uh, really everyone in Greece during the time of Philip and Alexander. Uh, they brought in the, the five meter pike, which had effectively changed warfare uh, in the Middle East. So, um, but there was still uh, opposition to Clementian reform. His quick victories had uh, Increased land reform in other cities uh, began reforms, but uh, at the end, Clemenides uh, really was not able to consolidate his gains and um, was not able to uh, keep them in place. The um, uh, continued warfare in the Peloponnese uh, continued to draw resources and money away and the uh, raids by uh, certain other um, Achaean factions into the Peloponnese caused much damage um, for Clemenides, and uh, he would not face uh, the Macedonians who had invaded as well in a pitched battle. Eventually, the Spartans were defeated, and um, a few Spartans escaped, one of which who was Clemenides. He returned to Sparta, uh, told the people that they should uh, surrender, and then uh, fled to Alexandria, where one of the Ptolemies uh, protected him. Uh, that changed when uh, there was a succession change in Alexandria. One of the, uh, the, the king, Ptolemaic king, died, and his son took over. 
and the um, he was uh, going to be given up to his enemies, and he received, uh, or rather, uh, avoided capture by committing suicide. Uh, interestingly, William Smith described him as the last true great man of Sparta, uh, perhaps of the entire Helen, uh, uh, Peloponnese, and uh, maybe even of Greece. I'm not sure I would go that far, but it, he certainly was able to institute reforms. Uh, but once again, we saw that uh, either lacking the political will to, to see them through or unable to, uh, really could not make um, uh, his reforms uh, under his uh, political leadership permanent. Nevertheless, uh, what he was able to achieve uh, is something uh, uh, worthwhile, and particularly for uh, that time and place in the ancient world, uh, it was really uh, an unprecedented uh, uh, implementation of land reform. Um, well, can you tell us about Tiberius, excuse me, uh, Gaius uh, Gracchus, Richard? Well, Gaius was uh, Tiberius's younger brother by some nine years. I'm not sure how far apart they really were. Uh, Cornelia had 12 children, but as I described, only three of them survived to adulthood. Um, but Gaius had a very different temperament from Tiberius. And Plutarch says Tiberius was gentle and composed, while Gaius was earnest and vehement. Their oratorical styles were also completely different. Uh, Tiberius spoke in a quiet, orderly manner, while Gaius would walk about and pull his toga off his shoulders very dramatically, um, supposedly the first of the Romans to use that gesture. He was born about 154 BC, and his political career started about 133 when he served on the land commission uh, established by Tiberius, distributing land according to the Lex Sempronia Agraria. However, in 126 BC, he was elected quaestor, uh, which was, again, was a financial post, and sent to Sardinia. While there, during a harsh winter, the Roman legate requisitioned clothing supplies from the local population by force. The Sardinians protested to the Roman Senate, which backed them up. And uh, But then Gaius went around personally appealing to the citizens, who then supplied the same goods voluntarily rather than by position. In addition, about the same time, the king of Numidia sent grain out of his personal regard for Gaius to help alleviate the uh, state of the army. Um, both of these actions seem to have actually caused some consternation in the Senate um, because they meant that his, uh, his oratorical skills and uh, charisma were, could be dangerous to them. So they attempted to sideline him by extending his questorship into a second year, which was not totally unusual, but then into a third year, which was almost unprecedented, and it was unprecedented in peacetime. He went to Rome to challenge the extension and was charged with abandoning his post. He defended himself. He'd already served in the army 12 years instead of the required 10, and his quester two years instead of the required one. He also pled that he'd returned with an empty purse rather than with wine casks full of treasure like the other officers. Uh, he was acquitted of the charges, apparently, although the records have been lost. The tribunal election for 123 BC was especially fierce as the Senate sought to oppose Gaius's election. 
Um, at the same time, the Senate was called on to ratify the settlement for Asia, which had been engineered by a senator named Aquilius. Um, this was related to the, uh, the legacy of King Attalus that we talked about in the previous podcast. So it had taken almost 10 years to reach a settlement. The uh, ratification was stalled because Aquilius was correctly accused of having taken bribes to settle the border with King Mithridates at Pontus and Mithridates' favor. But at the trial, he was accredited through using the funds he acquired by bribery to bribe the jurors to acquit him of bribery. Gaius used this as a campaign issue to lambaste the corruption of the Senate, and he was elected tribune easily. His first bill was aimed at Octavius, the tribune whose obstinacy had contributed so much to Tiberius' death. It prohibited any man who had been deposed by, the, by an assembly from ever serving as magistrate again. For some reason, his mother Cornelia interceded and he withdrew the bill. The second bill provided that the Senate could not convene a tribunal, such as the one that had persecuted Tiberius' followers, without permission from the assembly. And this bill was actually retroactive. Uh, one of the two consuls who had persecuted Tiberius' followers had already died, but the other uh, fled into exile upon passage of the bill. Gaius's reform program was far more extensive than Tiberius. He wanted to create new communities, including one where Carthage had stood. He launched a project to improve and extend highways, infrastructure bill. He wanted a stable supply of subsidized grain for the city dwellers. He passed a law that soldiers would no longer have to pay for their arms, equipment, and clothes, uh, alleviating the problems we again had talked about earlier uh, that had impoverished many of the soldiers. Uh, during their campaign seasons. Another bill attacked Aquilius' settlement in Asia by providing that the tax farming contracts would be handled by the censors in Rome rather than the governor in Asia. He also passed a bill that jurors of the extortion court would no longer be drawn from the Senate, but solely from members of the equestrian order who were permanently domiciled in Rome. This meant in practice that only the uh, wealthy merchants who supported themselves through trade and business uh, would serve on this, which gave them a, a very important tool uh, to balance the power of the Senate. Gaius was re-elected tribune in 122, despite not being a candidate. Uh, some of the 10 spots ended up being left vacant after the voting was counted and the other tribunes appointed him. It's not clear if this was a setup or if it was just luck. But incidentally, running for uh, re-election tribune was one of the reasons his brother had been killed, and by this time, it was sort of a non-issue. His enemies in the Senate used another tribune uh, before. This one was Marcus Livius Drusus to basically outbid Gaius and undermine his popularity. Gaius lost a vote where he sought to elevate Italians with what were called Latin rights to full Roman citizenship. He then went to help establish the new colony at Carthage and spent 70 days there where nothing went right. Omens were bad. And during that time period, he had some incompetent help uh, representing him in Rome, and he lost a great deal of his prestige. On his return, he ran for a third consecutive term as tribune and was elected. But the magistrates counting the vote threw out a lot of the ballots and declared him defeated, which stripped him of the legal protections he had had as a tribune. Lucius Opimius was elected consul. He was a particularly brutal uh, general who had 
uh, razed uh, an Italian town to the ground and enslaved its citizens when they had uh, rebelled. And he made it his personal mission to destroy Gaius. The Senate granted him authority to do whatever he thought necessary to preserve the state. And the next day, uh, he and his army attacked the Gracchans using archers and slingers. I'm not sure what happened to the prohibition on weapons inside the city. Um, but dispersed the, the Gracchan group, and then they were hunted down, and many of them were killed. Gaius fled as far as the sacred grove, where he ordered his slave to kill him. Uh, he was killed, but then his head was cut off, and the guy who got the head extracted his brains and had molten lead poured into it because Pimeus had offered a bounty in gold for the, based on the weight of the head, uh, which at the time was 17 and two-thirds pounds, and Pimeus paid the guy in full. At least 250 people were killed that day, and thousands more were identified and executed in the next days and weeks in a purge which essentially ended the, the Kraken movement in Rome. But their legacy of representing the people and attempting to reform um, created the uh, later distinction between what were called the Populares and the Optimates. Um, they never actually organized political parties, but they were very different political philosophies. So once again, uh, uh, Gracchus met a sorry end. Their mother retired and, and lived on some years uh, outside of Rome. Um, but most of the reforms never happened or actually happened. Continued to conflict the Roman uh, state for another hundred years before they were ultimately settled. So I'm not sure there's anything terribly uplifting in this, but uh, what do you think, Tom, <laughs> about... Uh, Cleomenes and Gaius. We'll be back after this short break. Well, I thought uh, Gaius, um, with his initial steps at judicial reform, whether that was uh, targeting uh, people who had uh, led to the execution of his brother or not, I thought that was an interesting, what I perceived as interim step, he tried any sort of land reform. Um, the, uh, the, other, the, the greater sense I got, Richard, was uh, the, even the short time between the death of Tiberius Gracchus and Gaius Gracchus, um, the resort to violence was almost immediate. And yeah. uh, violence now uh, really was the touchstone of the Roman political scene probably all the way up to the um, assassination of Julius Caesar and then the war uh, after uh, the assassination where Augustus, uh, Octavius Caesar, uh, uh, was uh, triumphant and became Augustus Caesar. So um, we, we really have a, a, a truly 100-year mark of just uh, chaos after chaos after chaos after chaos. And um, I guess the, the surprising thing is not that the Roman Republic fell, but that it lasted so long, uh, given where it was in 235 um, at this time. So, um, but I thought uh, interesting um, uh, attempts, again, by Gaius Gracchus 
Uh, Clemenides, once again, was not someone I was familiar with. And um, he appeared to have had much more success with his land reforms, obviously, uh, than Aegis, uh, because he was able to implement them. But he resorted to the sword. And there was a great quote um, from Plutarch that um, resorting to the knife is not the mark of a statesman or a good physician. So uh, I wondered what your father and brother might think of that uh, as physicians today. But um, and, and certainly an interesting my, my analogy father. between uh, and Clemenides uh, was a very successful military leader. Uh, you know, when five thousand Spartans route twenty five thousand anything, I think that's a that's a pretty good victory. And so he was able to consolidate a lot of political power because of military success. Um, and that his attempts to, I guess this was really the last close to successful attempt to bring um, Sparta circa 220 BC uh, back 100 years or even 200 years to uh, when Sparta had uh, been uh, a much different type of society. So uh, interesting uh, in that way, but uh, also interesting that Plutarch would really focus on two Spartans as opposed to Athenians. It's because I, I had thought even at this point in time, Athens was uh, the cultural center of um, all of Greece, including the Peloponnese uh, and Boeotia uh, as well. Nevertheless, uh, Plutarch focused on the, these two Spartans and the Spartan go governance system of uh, the dual monarchy. So um, we saw a lot of violence from both of these two men. And uh, probably when you have this level of violence, you're, as you said, you're going to have this level of backlash, uh, which is what we saw uh, from both. Uh, any thoughts uh, from uh, you maybe either comparing the two men together or any leadership lessons that we might be able to draw out? Well, I wanted to point out one thing, which was that Agaius's attempt to basically bring the other Italians into full Roman citizenship was probably motivated by the same concerns we talked about last time, and that it would uh, both increase the tax base and increase those people eligible for conscription into the army. The lessons, one of the ones, uh, Gaius apparently had a recurring dream that his brother uh, kept uh, telling him that, uh, why do you hesitate? There's no escape. One life is fated for us both, and one death as champions of the people. And I think that it gave him a sort, a sort of fatalism. You certainly saw it in his last few days, um, that he actually expected to be killed, but that he felt that this was an important enough cause that uh, he was willing to die in it. And I think that's one of the reasons that it was not too long after their death that the uh, the Romans raised statues to both of the, uh, the Gracchus brothers uh, and to their mother as well. As for leadership lessons, I think uh, from Cleomenes, we can learn that you really shouldn't assassinate your board of directors, or if, at least not partially. Um, and um, the problem of distraction. Um, Cleomenes was trying to institute and carry out that major land reform at the same time he was carrying on successive military campaigns. And it seems to me that he never was able to cement the success of his land reform, uh, in part for that reason, that he was being distracted by 
by the constant demands of the other uh, other requirements of his office. And I think that's something we all need to uh, to watch out for. Gaius, Richard, lots to uh, to unpack here, and the uh, the other thing that uh, it really seemed that these four men really fit together. I thought as well. Obviously, the Gracchi, uh, Gracchus brothers. But uh, Clemenes uh, following Aegis in Aegis attempts at land reform and indeed even being forced to marry uh, his widow, I thought uh, really cemented the, these two Spartans in a way that we hadn't seen in the past either. Yeah, and I think both of these cases, what we're seeing is an attempt to return to the forms of the past. Um, and so I guess the question, especially with respect to Romans, was was that ever even going to be possible? Because with the massive wealth and the shift in power, the creation of the mercantile class, once they controlled basically the entire Mediterranean, which was uh, excluded from the aristocracy, um, I think that was a problem that was, was never going to be solved with the old forms. And that, uh, that struggle... Uh... You know, was present up in England up until uh, the mid 1800s uh, as well. So that was uh, been an ongoing open question uh, as well. Anything? Um, I really appreciate your point about focus and really, or in Clemenides' case, the lack of focus by being distracted. And should uh, does can we maybe draw from that that uh, a leader? A CEO type leader should not have too many initiatives going on at once that uh, you really do lose focus uh, if you have multiple initiatives, particularly as as serious as as those were for his uh, continued success as monarch. I think that's true. And I think uh, Gaius's trip to Carthage was disastrous. It was was only 70 days, but it cost him uh, a great deal of political support and possibly ultimately his life, although I think the Senate had it in for him anyway. Um, and they don't, I'm, nobody's really clear on why he did it. Um, it could be that he just felt that his, his colony pr- uh, project was that important. Um, it was a prestige thing to him, um, but he definitely took his eye off the ball at the wrong time. And uh, I do think there's a, a very strong lesson there for us. I'd like to thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed our discussion today of the Gracchuses and Cleomenes and Aegis. And uh, we hope you will follow us again for our next discussion of Plutarch's Noble Lives of the Grecians and Romans. For now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. I hope you will join us again next week where we take up the Greek Pericles and the Roman Fabius Maximus in episode three of our series on Plutarch's Lives. This series on Plutarch's Lives on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.